собой шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello and welcome to the SRB podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture, and history. As always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory. The SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh, and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you'd like to support the podcast, go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog or to the podcast website, seansrussiablog.org, and hit the Patreon button and join the table of ranks. This week's podcast is a recording of an interview I did at the University of Pittsburgh as part of the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies Spring Speaker Series, Spying, Archiving, Reporting, Information in Eastern Europe. This event is titled Shaping National Memory, Ukrainian Secret Police Archives and World War II, featuring Jared McBride. Jared McBride is a lecturer in the History Department at UCLA, specializing in ethnic diversity and mass violence in Nazi-occupied Volynia, Ukraine, during the Second World War. He's currently finishing a book titled Webs of Violence, Occupation, Revolution, and Terror in Western Ukraine, 1941-1944. He's the author of Peasants into Perpetrators, The Oun, Upa, and the Ethnic Cleansing of Volynia, 1943-1944, which was published in the fall 2016 issue of the Slavic Review, and Who's Afraid of Ukrainian Nationalism, published in the summer 2016 issue of Kritika. I've linked both articles on the podcast website, so check them out. I've also provided a partial transcript of this interview, so please go to the link on the podcast website for it. Here's Jared McBride. So to start our conversation, I wanted to ask you about your work, your research, and what you've been working on pretty much since I've known you. Uh, And your work looks at the role of Ukrainian locals in ethnic cleansing and the murder, uh, ethnic cleansing and the murder of Poles and Jews during World War II in Western Ukraine. So I wanted to start by just having you talk about what got you interested in this topic. Sure. Um, first, uh, thanks, uh, thanks for having me. I'm a longtime listener and supporter of the show. Uh, my, I w- told my father-in-law I was going to be on a podcast the other day, and he said is that the one that we listened to in the car ride two years ago about Russia? And so I said, yes, it is. So I've made many people listen to this wonderful podcast by, by Sean. Um, so to discuss, I guess, some of the background um, on my work, uh, I would say it was actually my early experiences uh, as an undergraduate. Uh, I had a, an advisor who was uh, brave enough to take me as an undergraduate to the archives uh, in Moscow, uh, where I did research, which ultimately became uh, my senior thesis project. Uh, and we worked with a collection uh, which was known at the time and is much more known now, I think, over the last uh, decade uh, in particular, uh, called the Extraordinary State Commission, uh, often known as Chugaka. Uh, and this was a massive collection uh, of testimonies, among other things, uh, collected uh, immediately after uh, the Red Army pushed the Nazis um, out of Eastern Europe uh, and Russia. Uh, And this commission was sent in to basically record uh, the damage and what had happened uh, during the Second World War. And they did everything from counting how many chickens were lost in the entire uh, Soviet Union during the war to the Nazis, uh, as well as recording uh, sort of the very macabre history of violence uh, during the war. And it was working with these uh, testimonies uh, of people who survived the war uh, and their descriptions of what happened uh, during the conflict uh, that had a really uh, big effect on me. So I became uh, I became immediately sort of ensconced in this idea that this is uh, this is not a war. Um, the bigger picture of this war about the sort of the Nazi uh, versus Soviet military battles 
uh, is sort of provides one half of the story, but the other half is really what's going on at the local level. Um, and this includes questions about collaboration, working, working with the Nazi regime, uh, tensions between uh, different groups uh, in the borderland region in the Soviet Union, so violence between these groups, um, and a whole host of other issues at the local level. Um, so that had a really big uh, sort of effect on my interest uh, in, in this region, this topic during the Second World War. Now, your, your work is, is part of a growing uh, body of scholarship that is looking at the fundamental role locals played in carrying out ethnic cleansing and genocide on the Eastern Front. And so how do historians understand the role of locals' collaboration in mass ethnic violence in the period? So there's a deeper historiographical uh, discussion, I guess like most things that's gone on now for the better half of the, I guess, well, the second half of the 20th century and into this century, uh, dealing with extremely uh, difficult, highly uh, politicized uh, discussions uh, about what happened uh, during the Second World War uh, at the local level. Um, now, yet to contextualize these early discussions, you have to put this in the context of the Cold War, right? So uh, during the Cold War, uh, the Soviet Union uh, presented a very uh, one-sided argument about uh, what people did during the war, uh, branding anybody who worked uh, with uh, the, the Nazi regime uh, as collaborators. These people uh, were often uh, demonized after the war and in Soviet press. Um, and in the West, there wasn't as much uh, interest uh, in the topic initially. Um, so we tended to, especially when it came to topics like the Holocaust, I mean, ethnic cleansing within this larger context uh, of the Second World War, sort of inter-ethnic violence, was actually not really studied that much at all in the West, um, um, really until the 80s and 90s. Um, so questions like that were sort of even off, um, off the table. Uh, and when the Western historians looked at, um, especially issues of the Holocaust, it's, it was very much top down. This was looking, focusing on uh, sort of Nazi uh, participation and, and, and that this was planned ultimately carried out um, by, uh, by Nazis in Eastern Europe. Um, it was only uh, it was only towards the end uh, of the Soviet Union, towards the collapse, where people began to really look at uh, what the role uh, the role uh, of locals uh, was uh, during uh, the Second World War. Uh, and since then, there have been a lot of very sort of heated uh, debates about how to contextualize and think about local participation uh, in this violence. And in many ways, you can actually make a comparison between uh, this investigation of local violence and participation in mass violence, whether it's the Holocaust or other, uh, other events. It, it mirrors in some ways some of the earlier debates uh, about uh, Nazi participation uh, in violence during the war and the Holocaust. So uh, earlier discussions beginning talking about focusing on things like uh, ideology, which is what drove Nazis to commit violence, uh, until ultimately we get to a point where uh, we, and especially uh, the work of Christopher Browning, where we begin to look at sort of ordinary people and why do ordinary people get drawn into uh, into violence. Yes, we know that there are um, highly ideological actors. People have been trained uh, to sort of commit certain acts of violence, uh, but there's also lots of average people that get brought into these events as well. And so we've, we've, uh, we're still, I guess, in the middle of this discussion uh, right now, uh, and the question of ideology looms large, and obviously it's not necessarily the ideology uh, of Nazism per se um, in Eastern Europe, uh, but there are questions about um, nationalist ideology, um, how much did that, did that drive certain actors at the local level um, to uh, participate uh, in violence. But now we've also, and the, maybe the ideology also of anti-Semitism, whether it's a more sort of modern form or even other uh, sort of pre-modern traces of, of anti-Semitism, whether that drove people to participate in violence. And we've begun uh, to move away from that and also now look at uh, look at violence at the local level. So just questions of just regular, uh, uh, regular sort of um, social science tinted questions about um, uh, sort of peer pressure, uh, uh, economic motivations, um, and other sort of di social dynamics at the local level um, that are also playing into why uh, local collaborators um, are, or sort of local population um, become implicated uh, in, in violence. So. 
Now, you recently just published an article looking at ethnic cleansing, mostly of Poles in Volhynia, a province in, in Western Ukraine from 1943 to 1944. So what, what are some of your main conclusions? What do you discover some in, with that article? So uh, I guess even building off of the, the last question, uh, in the same way that there have been this, there's a sort of large arc uh, of, of how the debates have gone about local participation in the Holocaust and other events, um, we've seen, uh, we can see sort of a similar arc in discussing uh, this event uh, known as uh, the ethnic cleansing of the Polish population in Western Ukraine um, during uh, the Second World War. Um, this was one of the, I guess mentioned this earlier, this was one of these events that wasn't well known um, at all um, in the West really until uh, the end uh, of the Soviet Union. Um, and then, then now has become really an object of debate, especially in Eastern Europe uh, with Polish and Ukrainian historians um, since 1991. Uh, and we've basically moved from a point of not knowing much about this to uh, many different sides getting involved uh, and trying to frame uh, the debate about what happened um, in this region. Um, now we know um, the numbers are generally uh, generally accepted that uh, somewhere in the neighborhood uh, of anywhere from I don't know, 50, 60 to 100,000 Poles are massacred in Western Ukraine, uh, starting, uh, depending upon where you want to start, late 42, going into 1944. Uh, the violence begins uh, in the region of Volhynia and then spreads uh, to Galicia. Uh, and the violence is carried out uh, by the Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists, the OUN, as well as the, the UPA, or the Ukrainian uh, Insurgent Army. Uh, and we know that Polish units also uh, retaliate against uh, against Ukrainians, uh, and the numbers are in the tens of thousands in terms of deaths uh, of Ukrainian uh, civilians uh, that are killed uh, as well um, at this time. And there's been a, the, a number of good articles and books on this topic, by um, especially by Polish historians, um, some Ukrainian historians, and then uh, historians in the West like uh, Timothy Steiner, a, wrote a very formative article uh, about this topic probably over 10 years ago now. So the larger contours of um, what had happened in the region, um, the, sort of the body counts, this idea that this was uh, a coordinated ethnic cleansing campaign, those things are largely, um, largely accepted. My intervention in the topic or my work on the topic um, uh, was not was actually not intended when I was doing research for the dissertation as often as often happens uh, and I was working with um, uh, files from the secret police archives in Ukraine the former KG uh, the former KGB archive which I'm sure we'll talk about a little bit later um, and I came across I was actually looking at the topic of uh, people who collaborated with the with the Nazi regime and the local police forces um, and that was really my focus and I knew that they had participated in the Holocaust and I was, I came across the fact that a number of these local policemen also happened to participate in this ethnic cleansing campaign and were recruited uh, by the Ukrainian insurgent army uh, to participate uh, in this violence. And this, interestingly enough, this wasn't even the focus of the investigation. It sort of just came up. Um, and there's something like 10,000 pages in this file, and there's maybe a couple hundred pages uh, to this small topic. So um, what I wanted to do was uh, deconstruct uh, a single episode, a single ethnic cleansing operation uh, in uh, Volyn Oblast. Uh, this is in the region uh, of Volynia. Uh, and I the, the main goal was to disaggregate uh, the perpetrators um, of this event. Um, so typically we look at um, events of ethnic cleansing. Uh, we assume uh, that, uh, we kind of assume uh, homogeneity among uh, the actors that are carrying out the violence. We assume that they're often uh, uh, sort of governed by ethnic grievances, and this is why they're carrying out the violence. Um, but what I found is, especially getting at this, uh, getting at this topic from a new source, uh, was that there were uh, a number of different actors from uh, highly ideological uh, nationalists who were sort of coordinating the operation uh, to local policemen who had recently uh, joined the Ukrainian nationalist ranks, um, often by happenstance, and then sort of regular farmers or peasants um, who to their own admission had no hatred towards Poles uh, and were recruited for these operations um, to basically help out and be manpower. Uh, and as a result, they were often enticed by, you got to keep the goods of all the Poles that you murdered um, in the villages that you wiped out. 
Um, so uh, the, the really the main argument, there's some other arguments as well, but the main argument uh, is this sort of disaggregation uh, of both participants as well as motivations. Um, and this sort, of, this sort of hides behind this guise of, of ethnic violence um, that, we, uh, that we sort of see from above. Um, so that was, that was, I'd probably say, the main, the main takeaway um, from that article. So, um, you know, because you, you focus mostly on locals, local agency and the participation in, in, in these massacres, can you elaborate more on what are some of the motivations driving people to turn on their neighbors to attack people in other villages within in, in the context of your work? Sure. Yeah. So I, I think one of the one of the important things to keep in mind uh, when looking at the local level uh, is that we need to understand. We need to disaggregate in the same way that I explained in my my example about with regard to the article and the ethnic cleansing uh, operation. Uh, that there's often uh, an array of motivations, and there's often different levels at which people are interacting with one another. And so, which I probably when I say it sounds quite obvious, um, but again, when we've looked at, when you look at the literature and you look at the understanding of um, local participation in violence during the war, uh, it's often, it's pretty flat. So on one hand, we know we know the Nazis are there. We know that the genocide of the Jews is ultimately a Nazi project and conceptualization. Uh, so even though, even though, as I just mentioned with pogroms, even though of course there's violent local violence driven uh, without Nazis there at all, uh, it was not genocidal. Um, so then we know that the Nazis are there, and then we just assume that there's this kind of swath of locals that are being told thing that the Nazis are, are telling uh, them what to do, uh, and they're sort of carrying it out because because they're scared of reprisal from the Nazis. Uh, this is the typical story. Uh, or that if there's any sort of motivating factor from below, uh, it can be explained away with some sort of uh, some sort of form of uh, anti-Semitism, so to speak, that people hold grudges against the Jews or hold grudges against their Polish neighbors, uh, and that sort of fills in the gap between sort of fear of reprisal from the, uh, from the Germans uh, and their own interests and why they carry out violence. In my work, I tried to break this down, uh, break this down in a, in a much more uh, at a much more mi micro level. And it turns out when the Germans come into a village, uh, they often uh, appoint someone to be the local police chief. Uh, they put someone in a position of power. Um, there's not in, in most of these villages as well, of course, where the Holocaust is carried out. There aren't many Germans, and so you know, there might be one or two in the in the county. Uh, but it's this, actually this local police chief or people around him or a local mayor. These people tend to have. Uh, in an inordinate amount of power during uh, during the war. Um, of course, we have a complete collapse of any sort of state power. Germans aren't around, uh, and it's these individuals, and these are sort of special individuals in my in, in my work who are helping to organize police forces and are actually helping to drive uh, local participation in violence. And in a way, I see these are sort of entrepreneurs who I believe translate uh, the sort of the, the Nazi project uh, in a way that's meaningful on the local level. And they will use different forms of enticement to get locals to participate in violence. And, and again, these are the people who actually know all of the locals. So they can, you know, they know if someone did something bad during the Soviet regime and they'll say to them, I know what you did in 39. Would you like to join my police force now? Uh, sometimes it's just their friends and say, you know, here's an opportunity. You're going to get a good paycheck. Um, Want to join join the police force? And sometimes it's at the the barrel of a gun, and say so you're going to participate in this violence, or there's going to be uh, or there's going to be consequences. Uh, so it's this relationship that I think is extremely important in understanding what's how you get people to to participate um, in violence. And then I mean that sort of fills in ideas about uh, about you know peer pressure and uh, you know recruitment, all these other other um, topics that have been dealt with and other arenas but have not been brought necessarily to this discussion uh, of Eastern Europe. In the same way you can kind of look at that uh, look at that structure and agency um, when it comes to uh, when it comes to local police forces and collaboration, you can see it's similar. You can see it similar even with the nationalist violence, where in my other example I just gave, not everybody is necessarily on board with the general uh, theme. Not, 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 every, not everyone's even sure exactly who they're going to kill but they know that they're going to get something out of it. 
They know that they're scared about their family. Um, so these the, the context and the situation on which the violence is happening uh, and these sort of uh, these levels uh, of interaction uh, at the local level that have been and fairly hidden to us up until this time period, or partly because we haven't been looking for them, uh, I think that that's, I think that does a lot more work for us in understanding uh, this. Yeah. Now, you mentioned that you, you, this importance of this new source and looking at this one incident, but your, your work in general is highly reliant on using police archives, Soviet police archives, particularly from Ukraine, because the Ukrainians have opened the access to these archives. So, um, and, you know, the contents of police archives, KGB archives, secret police archives, they're always have for a long time been an object of fascination, uh, mostly because they were closed and, and people always wondered what is in, what kind of information is in them. So since you've done a lot of work with these archives, talk about the, the, the archives, the access to them and the types of information they contain that is relevant for your work. Sure. Um, that's sort of a that's a, a big question to talk about the archives, but uh, well, I guess we can come at this from a we come at this from a number of different uh, a number of different angles. Um, so actually, I mean, I'll even go back to what I began with during the first question. So the first question I talked about, uh, I mentioned uh, or my answer to the first question. I mentioned uh, this Chugaka, the Extraordinary State Commission, which was these testimonies that were that were collected um, by uh, a Soviet commission immediately after the war uh, that sort of provide this very nuanced, detailed look into what happened during the occupation. Um, and this had been a source for a lot of historians who wanted to really, after 91, who wanted to tell a much more detailed account of the Second World War. Um, the police archives um, are like the Extraordinary State Commission times a million. Um, so what you have is um, oftentimes the Extraordinary State Commission would give lists of local uh, collaborators or people who worked with the Nazi regime to the secret police, um, and they also got it from other sources as well. As well, uh, and the secret police, uh, the NKVD at the time, this is later the KGB, uh, would arrest individuals for crimes that they committed during the occupation, um, interview uh, other locals or witnesses for what they had done, uh, and then often sentence them to very, very steep uh, sentences, oftentimes up to 25 years um, in uh, in Siberia. Um, so, uh, and then. Uh, you will see, so these cases provide a very, uh, a very detailed uh, account uh, about uh, what had happened uh, during uh, the war. And there's also a very explicit discussion uh, about the Holocaust and also about inter-ethnic violence. And so we tend to think that these two topics uh, are often off uh, the table uh, when it comes to the sort of the Soviet uh, conceptualization of what happened during the Second World War. Um, and it was reasonable to think that because if you read uh, newspapers or formal sort of Soviet publications about the war, um, all sort of victims were uh, kind of streamlined into one category. Is the We often joke about this right, macabre joke, but the you know, peaceful Soviet citizens, right, was every victim during the war. So, you know, the joke is, of course, that, well, they were Soviet citizens and they were likely peaceful, but um, but it's not accurate because this is the, even uh, the millions of Jews who were murdered during the war subsumed into these categories um, as well. Uh, but if you, you sort of you look behind the curtain or the sort of official propaganda uh, of the Soviet Union um, into things like the police archives, you realize that uh, there is uh, there's just millions of pages of documents that account um, for what uh, account for what happened during the war. And what's important in looking at the police archives when it comes to uh, answering questions about local violence and motivations and why people, even just simple questions, why people worked with the Germans or why they participated um, in the Holocaust, um, is that there's sort of an evolution of uh, these cases uh, against local participants in violence. So it's probably not a surprise, the earlier cases from 44, 45 um, that are carried out when the war is still going on, oftentimes NKVD units are passing through, um, they tend to be uh, the least reliable and actually the most sort of sloppy work is done at this time. So you'll see, you know, two or three witness statements. Um, and the, sort of the most obvious sign that you're not reading a, a, a particularly solid case is when witness state, uh, statements tend to resemble one another very closely, right? So uh, you'll, you'll see two or three uh, witness statements, uh, a sentence is handed out, oftentimes they're shot or sent to Siberia, uh, and that's that. Um, but 
as soon as the war ends, um, they're able to sort of establish power in these regions. Um, and sort of more, more experienced police forces are brought in. Uh, then the trials become more extensive. Uh, we see uh, we see a number the trials in the, a number of the hundreds of thousands against uh, local collaborators um, by uh, by the death of Stalin in '53, uh, and then we see a pause uh, in these trials. Um, and actually, many of the local collaborators uh, who were uh, sentenced to Siberia are many come back uh, during uh, Khrushchev's uh, thaw, and we see this pause kind of go on in this interest in the topic of the war. So roughly the 1960s, we're still trying to actually work out um, the, the chronology and the timeline of this. And then starting in the 60s, especially in the 70s, many of these local collaborators um, and nationalists as well uh, are retried uh, by uh, the Soviet government. Uh, now, the oftentimes they're tried under the premise that um, new crimes have been, new evidence and crimes have been uh, discovered. And many people, when they look at this, they sort of make the argument say like, oh, well, this is obviously double jeopardy. Um, and of course, in a lot of ways, it is, this is Soviet justice. Uh, but also the flip side of it is, so many people were murdered uh, during the war in these in these regions during the occupation that it's actually very possible that they found people who were uh, that they found people who were uh, had not been accounted for prior. So they'll use this as a premise to reopen trials, um, and then they'll actually you know reinterview witnesses from 20 years prior. Um, but some of these cases, and even the one I mentioned about uh, regarding my ethnic cleansing article, they will interview every single person in a rayon, so a county, or even even multiple counties, who was alive during the Second World War, every single person. So you'll have thousands of testimonies um, from a you know from a small county d um, during the war about what had happened, uh, and so that so that kind of material. And of course, I can um, and it may be in a different question or, or answer. I can uh, say a few words about what you need to look out for, sort of methodological concerns, if that's of interest. Well, this uh, is what yeah, I wanted yeah, to ask sure. about in terms of you know you know as we know it, Soviet police documents and. One could think of, say, during 36, 37, 38, you know, the accuracy of the information is really kind of suspect. So how do you deal with like the methodological issues of of, you know, the information that's in these documents? Yeah. And so that and that's and so this often and this often colors a lot of our approach to the police archives, like everything else when it comes to Soviet history, it's seen through the lens of high Stalinism, right? So, um, and, and we need to obviously move away from that. And then there's obviously ironies upon ironies when you're uh, studying Soviet history or in working in Eastern Europe. Uh, but yeah, one of the biggest ones in working with police archives is in the case of the trials, and I actually actually should separate this, the trials against local uh, collaborators or local participants in violence um, versus cases against uh, people who participated in the Ukrainian nationalist movement or even other movements in the Baltics. I'll sort of separate those two. Um, if you're looking at local collaborators, the irony is most of these cases, and I would say in, in, my, in my research, the overwhelming majority of these people um, had participated in the crimes that they were accused of. Now, the degree to which they were culpable, so whether you were head of the police or whether you were pulling the trigger at a, at a mass grave or you were just basically surrounding people at the mass grave, so sort of levels of culpability um, we, can, you know, we can obviously discuss, but uh, this idea that um, these people, that these were sort of you know, fabrications of crimes is completely absurd. Um, and it's and you talk about any sort of archival research, um, whether it's KGB archives or it's FBI archives, you want to be able to corroborate your information with other sources. And the beauty of, um, or else I said the sadness and the beauty of, of these archives is when it comes to issues like the Holocaust, there of course, we have wonderful testimonial archives now, memoirs, other books. Um, so you're really able to bring together this sort of uh, uh, hybridity between um, police documents uh, and just testimony of people often taken 40, 50, 60 years in a different country at a different time. And so in my own, and I've done this at a couple of presentations at the Shoah Foundation, um, often to show the, the how useful their archives are, which they turns out they like to hear, um, is is to actually show, I will show a testimony of some of taken in, in the 90s uh, of a uh, you know, Ukrainian or a Jew from a, uh, from a village in Western Ukraine um, describing the local policemen or describing events during the war. And then I'll pull up a testimony 
uh, from Soviet police archives describing the same um, exact events. Uh, and so, uh, so you're really able to bring together uh, a sort of an, um, an array of sources now to tell this story in a nuanced way. And, and, and just for the other stuff, so with the, this other question of, of nationalists who are tried after the war as well, um, some, of the, some of them had been participants in the local police, um, so had been implicated in other violence. When it comes to participation in the nationalist movement, uh, those, those sorts of cases I think are much more, uh, much more tricky to deal with because oftentimes you will see people, you know, they had they met with, you know, they ran into one insurgent in the woods once, and then they're accused of being in the Nationals organization. Um, but that really gets to, um, that gets to the point that you need to understand the politics and the motivations of people creating the documents, which again, I would say, this is not a special thing about KGB archives. You cannot read CIA documents if you don't understand their political motivations. And so in, in, the, in the case of the Soviet Union, um, there was very much a drive, it didn't matter what decade it was, to vilify and demonize anyone in the Ukrainian nationalist movement. So when it comes to that aspect of the files, uh, you have to be much more careful and it's really difficult to take uh, sort of uh, 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 on the surface what they're, what they're arguing about, um, what they're arguing about whether someone was actually implicated in the Ukrainian nationalist movement or not. So, um, so yeah. Hey, dear listeners. I just wanted to say thanks to everybody who listens to the SRV podcast and the support that many of you have given to the show. This podcast wouldn't exist if listeners didn't show the love, especially by chipping in money every month. But I also wanted to make an appeal to the silent majority out there who listen on a regular basis and do little in return for the pleasure. So I want all of you to think about what this podcast means to you. If it's worth $5 or $10 a month, then show me the money. Hell, if it's only worth $1 a month, then that's fine too. There are things I want to do in the coming year to diversify the format of the podcast. I want to do some historical documentaries. I want to provide more transcripts of interviews. And I want to do some more live events. All of this, unfortunately, takes money. So become a patron at patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog. Go to iTunes and write a review. Tell your friends, or just drop me a line to express your appreciation or offer some in-kind services. So I hope you guys all enjoy the show, and I hope you keep supporting it. And for those of you who aren't supporting it, I hope you start to. I want to thank everybody for listening and for your support. I'm done for now. Now on with the show. You know, I want to talk about the, the actual trials because I remember when you first told me about these war crimes trials uh, a few years ago and, and the fact that they're not only going on right after the war, but all the way up into the 1980s. Um, what were these trials public? What, what did they get press coverage or, you know, how did, did were the locals exposed to them? Like, how did they like why first? I think why would the the KGB do these trials repeatedly throughout the decades? Uh, and, and second, what role did they play on the local level and how were they carried out? So I think that changes over time, and this gets back to this larger um, chronology about the trials themselves. And you really have to, and, and this is, I mean, there's a number, I think, of levels of um, context you need when you're discussing KGB archives. I mean, one, you need to, as I've already said a few times, realize that KGB archives are archives, and so the tools that you're bringing into the archives you should bring into all archives. Uh, and then when you're talking about KGB trials or these political cases, as we would call them, um, and there's about a million of them uh, in Ukraine in total, uh, you need to think about the era in which they're being carried out because they're all not the same. Now, the trials immediately after the war or even towards the end of the war, um, these are not necessarily made public. Um, you can read local newspapers. They're not necessarily going to discuss. Uh, they're not necessarily going to harp on the fact of local collaboration um, because it's not the, really the message they want to be sending to the Soviet public about um, all of the people who were not loyal uh, during, uh, during the war. Uh, so that will not necessarily be the, you will not see the focus of that uh, in uh, in the post-war trials as sort of any public event, and so people are typically tried uh, pri privately, and then they're uh, and then they're sentenced. Um, the later trials, uh, 
you will see a long investigation. Um, these are sort of these the bigger trials from the 70s and 80s. People will be investigated. Uh, oftentimes, these trials will last one. The investigation part will last for a year or sometimes two years, as I've already noted, to produce something like, you know, there'll be uh, 11, 12 tomes, you know, stack this high, 10,000 pages of material, interview everybody in a county. Um, these will take, uh, take a great deal of time. And then at the end, uh, and of course, the conclusions are not necessarily the most uh, surprising. Um, and these guys already have already been tried in the 50s or 40s, so we already know what they what they had done during the war. Um, they will then have a, sort of a public trial. And so, in this in this sort of this mirrors uh, this sort of mirrors obviously the show trial as in our imagination of Soviet justice. Um, and you can look in local newspapers at the time. It's a well coordinated event. Uh, they will sit in the docket. Um, witnesses and people from the war will come in, of course, yell and accuse them of things. Um, and uh, and, and the, sometimes there's even newsreel footage, which I found from some of these cases. Um, and then they will be, and then often, then they will often be executed in these, uh, in these other trials. Um, then when it comes to what, what this means for the local population, so, and I'm not the first person to uh, make a number of these arguments. There's been, um, there's been some new work on this topic. Um, the early trials, I mean, I would actually say, even though they're not public, I mean, this idea, and, and, and I think it's, this, this is, a, this is an, again, an issue with how we treat Soviet history and, and Soviet citizens. There's this idea that just because they were um, secret police trials or the people were tried after the war, that, again, it's Soviet justice, so it must be perverted in some way, and that everyone was somehow coerced uh, co into giving a statement or a testimony. Um, but when you take a step back and you think about the uh, unimaginable levels of violence uh, during the occup Nazi occupation in Eastern Europe, and the fact that there were lots of peep neighbors, uh, loved ones, and other folks who were uh, complicit in this violence, uh, the idea that people would want to uh, testify about what had happened to them or to seek justice and redress, even if it is with the vilified, even if they don't even like the secret police, the idea that they'd want to seek redress to me seems pretty human and, and, and understandable. Um, so, and there's been some arguments that this provides some, you know, some form of an out of an outlet for people. You know, yes, it's not going to be on the front page of, of Pravda, but it gives people a way to to sort of seek justice. You know, and this, you know, this sort of mirrors obviously arguments about, you know, the. Uh, uh, you know, these arguments about participation from below in a number of topics in Soviet history. And so I think there's a bit of that there. I would say the trials in the 70s and 80s, my assumption, uh, and having talked to people as well, and witnesses and people who lived through the war, I don't, I think everyone knew that this was, we were just sort of trotting something out. I don't know, I don't think that they necessarily knew, you know, why are we retrying three policemen who maybe did 10 years in the gulag, came back home in the 50s and have basically been part of the community again after the war. And of course, everyone knows who they are. Everyone knows what they did. Um, I don't necessarily know that communities were totally aware of why uh, these trials were being done again in the 70s and 80s. Um, and I should say, historians, we're actually still trying to find it, figure out ourselves um, why they were being, why these trials were being trotted out again at this time. And, um, and I, actually, it th I actually think it's connected to uh, a Cold War question, sort of international context, um, which I'm sure locals did not necessarily, were not necessarily um, aware of at, um, at the time. There's two issues I want to bring up. First is that, you know, like you mentioned earlier, the the place of the Holocaust in the narrative of the Soviet narrative of the war, it, it tends to be not, it doesn't have an exceptional place, right? It, the, the violence against the, the murder of, of Jews, of Soviet Jews, gets basically incorporated into the general destruction of the Soviet people in the war. But the fact that, you know, as you said, these documents have a lot of attention that specifically points out violence against Jews does raise the question of, well, what, how was the Holocaust understood or even within these documents in the Soviet Union? So looking at this aspect, what is your view on how the Holocaust was treated in the Soviet Union after the war? 
I mean, the, I think the very short answer is it was instrumentalized, right? So I, I think that the, the the goal of Soviet justice, and especially these later trials, um, you can even look at the earlier trials too. The goal of Soviet justice wasn't necessarily, when it came to the Holocaust, wasn't to right wrongs and wasn't to uh, remember the Holocaust as a unique event uh, that it was. And you have this inst- you have this int- uh, interesting. Um, sort of split between on different sides of the Iron Curtain, where in the West, um, especially until the you know the 70s and late 70s and 80s, there's no conceptualization of actually what the Holocaust meant in Eastern Europe, right? There's just no understanding. Whereas I think it, it, on the other side of the curtain, these communities all understood what the Holocaust meant. They all understood, um, they all understood um, that this was uh, that this was carried out by locals, with the, obviously conceived by the Nazis, but carried out by locals. Um, and I think the Soviet government was aware of this. I think the Soviet super police was aware of this. So they knew what the Holocaust meant in Eastern Europe. And there comes this moment. Uh, there comes this moment in the 70s, especially the late 70s, uh, when uh, it turns out that. Uh, the West become, sort of becomes aware of the fact that a number of these local perpetrators, uh, some of them had been involved in the nationalist movement, some of them hadn't, um, had come to the West after the war. Um, they had fled with the Nazis. So, and this is typically um, typically heads of local police, even if you're in the village of middle of nowhere, heads of the police, of the local collaborationist police, would leave with their German, uh, with their German bosses, end up in DP camps, uh, claim that they were forced laborers, and then come to the United States after the war. So the U.S. becomes aware of this, it becomes a big issue, uh, and the Soviets, I think, are largely driving this narrative. They're sort of using this as a weapon against the West. They're making an ethical or uh, sort of moral argument uh, against the West, that the West doesn't care uh, that there are Holocaust perpetrators uh, amongst in their midst uh, and that they've done nothing to sort of root them out or punish them, whereas we, the Soviet Union, uh, have punished everybody who committed crimes during the Second World War. And so these trials are actually then linked uh, to a larger propaganda effort where you see uh, books being published in English, um, also you know sometimes Ukrainian, Russian, and English, published in the West, where they take narratives out of these trials um, and put them into the books. And they'll oftentimes and even call out where uh, a number of these local collaborators are living in the West. And so these books, I often, I often point this out, these books sometimes will just, they'll, they'll tell a horrible story about what happened in a village somewhere, uh, and then they'll list the address of the person who was head of the police and say, so-and-so lives in Philadelphia on this street. Um, uh, so I think that this, uh, this issue becomes, uh, becomes entangled in, in sort of a Cold War, uh, a Cold War fight uh, between the Soviet Union and the West, which is, again, back to my, to, to even what, what I began the answer with by saying that this is the Holocaust as an issue is being instrumentalized, right. and so... Now, now the uh, an interesting irony, though, is that in the last couple of years, you yourself have been, because of your access and work with these archival docs, Soviet archival documents, I mean, you've been consulting with the U.S. Justice Department on trying to uncover various war criminals who've been residing in, you know, in the United States. So uh, wh- what is all, what is this about? How did you get involved in this and what, what kind of work are you doing? Um, so occasionally, and this, I mean, this picks up on a theme, uh, this picks up on a theme that began in the 1970s. And so as a result, um, of this Cold War fight and as a result of the exposure of a number of, uh, of people, uh, during, uh, a number of sort of local collaborators as, as having come to the West and being undetected, um, this, uh, this spurs the creation of a special unit um, in the Department of Justice, the Office of Special Investigations, OSI, who are tasked uh, with uh, sort of looking into this question. It's actually not just local collaborators. It's also uh, some, some Germans and other high-ranking people who have not been looked at as well. Uh, uh, and obviously, the more high-ranking people had been typically brought over by uh, U.S. intelligence. Um, but the local guys, I mean, people in my story, um, the people in my story had not... Um, sort of they were not the focus of anybody uh, when they came over. Um, and OSI had been actually took over from, interestingly enough, from INS, now USCIS, um, because they had not, even though they had been given tips throughout the 70s about uh, about 
potential war criminals in our, in, in our midst. Uh, they were completely uninterested um, in this topic, uh, to, to, to give the short, very short version of it. Uh, and so OSI began a lot of work uh, in the 80s to really look into these issues. A number of people uh, were stripped of citizenship, a number of, and oftentimes they get stuck here anyway. Um, so there'd been a real, uh, there'd real, been a real uptick uh, in this, in interest in, uh, in uh, potential war criminals in the United States. Now, with the opening of the archives, uh, this is really, it also sort of pushed this, uh, it really pushed this topic further because we then had access to what, you know, a much more in-depth and colorful story about what had happened during the war, including local, uh, local collaborators. So we see another push during the 1990s as well uh, to look in, uh, to, uh, to really to look into these topics and find out uh, are there people potentially in the West and what, what they're guilty of. Um, and now obviously with most of um, the participants in the war are, are dying, it's really, uh, this is really sort of uh, petered out as a as a topic, um, but yeah, in, in my own work, I have and I uh, well, I could maybe talk somewhat vaguely about it. In my own work, I mean, I had come across a few people. Um, one person in particular who has since died, and I I'm not going to give the the full context, but I'd actually come across a, a perpetrator who was alive and living in and yeah and living in the United States. Um, it was someone who I could link to Holocaust testimony uh, as having participated in uh, a number of crimes. Uh, and I could actually link him to a, a survivor that was alive um, who, who knew who he was. Um, and I was able to, uh, and I was able to sort of place what this person had done um, during the war. Uh, and he, like many of these other people, had simply just, uh, had, you know, he was, everyone's checked when they're, when they're given a visa in Germany before they come to the, to the United States, but there's no reason anyone would have detected him. And he lived out the entire, he lived out the last 60 years of his life peacefully in the United States um, and died, even though he was head of a police force uh, during uh, during the Second World War. And it, I should say, as an historian, this is not, and I found this doing dissertation research, this was not really what I thought I was, <laughs> that's not what, I mean, there's, there's no training for this in graduate school. I mean, there's no training for pretty much everything you do, right? Um, but uh, but uh, uh, maybe that's just true in life. But um, there's no training for this in graduate school, and, and it raises a lot of uh, I think unsettling uh, ethical questions that you have to ask yourself about what you're supposed to do in this situation. Do you go to the press? Do you uh, do you sit on it? Do you give the information to um, uh, sort of a judicial body? Uh, and uh, so, yeah, I think there's a lot of there are a lot of difficult questions that I, I kind of was was forced with uh, and had to uh, had to encounter uh, through the course of my my, my research. Now, I want to go back to the archives and their place in, in Ukraine today, and this is something you've, you've written about uh, in terms of the politics of the memory of the war in Ukraine. Now, you know, Ukraine, as a couple of other post-Soviet states, have opened their, declassified their police archives, and this has been an incredible boon to researchers because, you know, files that you cannot get in Russia, uh, you can get in Ukraine. For example, what is the relationship between, why did they open these archives and, and how does this fit into the issues of Ukrainian national memory and nation building in, in Ukraine today? So there's a lot of politics and debate around uh, the archives in Ukraine, um, but what's important is, I think what's important is a larger context just in Eastern Europe and, and post-communist uh, post uh, countries. So Ukraine's actually late to the game when it came to opening their archives. So many of the nations of Eastern Europe had opened their archives at various points. I mean, the 90s, not so much, but starting in the early 2000s, uh, whether it was uh, the, the Czech Republic, uh, Poland eventually, um, and they all have their own um, timelines, uh, opened their archives uh, to varying degrees. Uh, and then typically by the end of the 2000s, uh, for the most part, many of these um, secret police archives uh, had been dealt with uh, in some way uh, in, in, in many of these uh, countries. And it's often, there's not just the issue of sort of uh, 
historical research, but of course, like lustration and the, and the ability to connect, uh, the ability to connect agent files to people who are working in the government, right? There's actually, this past week, there's been discussion about what has gone on in Latvia because they've released all the agent files. Um, so Ukraine was a little bit late to this game. They, why were they late to the game? They were late to the game um, partly because, I would say the sort of first two uh, presidential terms uh, under uh, or sort of first two presidents of uh, post-Soviet Ukraine, uh, Kravchuk and, and Kuchma, uh, were largely uninterested uh, in sort of delving into some of these more difficult uh, issues, both of a Soviet past uh, and also of a sort of a precarious present uh, and sort of holding together uh, a Ukrainian uh, country with many different um, sort of views on history. And, and obviously everyone knows about the different languages and different uh, in the sort of diversity of the country. And so they engage in what people often call sort of a, a multi-vector approach where they try to kind of keep everyone happy and avoid uh, the more difficult historical issues. Uh, and then in with the uh, Orange Revolution, the other, as I tell my students who are now probably too uh, young to have remembered the Orange Revolution, which is kind of weird to think, uh, I said the other revolution that we had in Ukraine, uh, as a result of the Orange Revolution uh, and uh, Yushchenko coming to power, who was certainly oriented towards the West, it was a reformer, um, also had strong ties to the Ukrainian diaspora, um, he pushed forward with opening the archives really uh, for the first time. And this gave people uh, the first sort of glimpse into the archives. And, but for Yushchenko and, and many people around him uh, at the time, and in particular, uh, this Institute of National Memory, which he founded uh, at the time as well, um, another sort of trend that we saw in Eastern Europe, these creation of these special institutes, which oftentimes took control uh, of police archives that administered them on their own, uh, and also crafted sort of educational policy, or sometimes a quote unquote, new national history uh, for a nation. Uh, Yushchenko would, uh, would bring this about um, in, uh, in Ukraine. And the archives were immediately, uh, thanks to the sort of the politics of this new institute and those around it, were immediately tied to uh, sort of a nationalizing project uh, in Ukraine uh, and a focus on um, sort of the most important issues uh, to the Ukrainian diaspora, which had been sort of brought back to Ukraine at this time, uh, like, um, like the famine, uh, like the sort of the, the repression of the Ukrainian nationalist movement, and to a lesser degree, topics like the Civil War period or Chernobyl or other things like this. Um, so as soon as the archives were open, they were immediately connected to very sort of controversial uh, historical issues, which it which from a historian's perspective, I mean, it's, it's fine insofar as the archives are open and everyone has access to look at them. Um, the archives are then uh, closed to a degree under, under Yanukovych after he comes to power in 2010, although uh, this argument uh, which is now actually being trotted out by the current government, that the archives were completely closed under Yanukovych actually turns out um, not to be true. Um, I actually did my dissertation research during the Yanukovych years, um, so historians were still had access to the archives. Um, but to bring it to the present, after the Maidan uh, revolution, a much more robust law uh, was passed in spring of 2015, uh, which really solidified uh, open access to everybody, foreigners, Ukrainians, anyone alike, um, bypassed any previous uh, privacy laws uh, concerns, which is another very complicated topic in Eastern Europe, um, and really made sure that everyone uh, had uh, complete and full access uh, to the archives, which um, even though uh, the drafters uh, of these laws and then those who are now pretty much in charge of helping carry out these laws, uh, and this is the people running the Institute of National Memory, um, I think have a very particular view uh, of Ukrainian history um, uh, that uh, does not uh, include uh, probably much of what we've talked about today. Um, and they're very, uh, there's sort of a set of hot button issues that they would like to focus on. Um, even though uh, that is what sort of governs their interest in the archives and what they promote on what they find in police archives, um, the larger point that the archives are open for everyone um, is, I mean, has been a has been an enormous uh, uh, enormous gain for the I think for the historical profession, no matter what topic you're looking at. And finally, um, going back to this, since I mean, really, since the Maidan in 2014, but of course it was occurring before that. But there's been a very strong push. 
uh, since 2014, and that is the effort to decommunize Ukraine. You know, it comes from changing street names back to either Ukrainian more national names or pre-revolutionary names, uh, the removal of Soviet iconography and statues from city public space. How does that decommunization effort and the laws that were uh, promulgated um, with it also fit with a lot of the stuff you were talking about in terms of the memory of the war, the memory of the nationalist movement, and and the pol- the general politics of Ukrainian history and memory today. Right. So the the archive, uh, the opening of the archives was one of a suite of four laws that was passed at the same time. One dealt with, uh, I believe, the the celebration of the end of Second World War. One was this law on symbols, uh, which again has roots in Eastern Europe. Uh, Other countries had passed similar laws in the early 2000s. Um, And then there's this third law about Sort of protecting and uh, protecting the memory of the Ukrainian nationalist um, Ukrainian nationalist movements, no matter. And this is not just Second World War, but again, Civil War, other period. Um, and it basically uh, it basically made it illegal, quote unquote, to uh, to criticize Ukrainian nationalist movements and to falsify history. Now. I was part of a group of scholars, not just in the West, but in Ukraine and other places in Europe that wrote a letter saying that this particular law of the four uh, was the most problematic and that these phrases were highly problematic, um, that this is not... um, this is not helpful for any any you know, it's not helpful for the civic development of any uh, of any country um, and it's also not helpful for uh, the development of the academy uh, in Ukraine. Um, now the response had been from those who crafted the law and those um, who uh, I'm sorry I would say enforce it was that there was no actual um, there was no actual penalties uh, for you know you weren't going to be thrown in jail. It was it, of course then. The question was, why then did you need to say that it's illegal to criticize uh, to you know to criticize any of these movements? Um, and so, uh, so that the response the, the response was not particularly uh, not particularly uh, helpful. Um, and I think you know in terms of foreign engagement or sort of Western engagement or scholars from outside of Ukraine, I should say, uh, with Ukrainian history. I don't think the law is, is that is going to be particularly harmful to us because we still and I've actually I've been back since um, since our archives were open and I've actually tested it in a few other ways and I've been very happy with the access that I've had and I think others have been happy as well. Um, but I think the law is also is, I think it's more problematic, especially for um Ukrainian scholars, and especially younger Ukrainians, people in graduate school, um, people who now who have again access to these archives um, and have more engagement with the West, uh, who want to take on sort of non-traditional topics, who want to look at some of these very, uh, very difficult issues about what had happened during the war, um, and, and and sort of have deeper debates about uh, about these these topics, similar to what we've seen in other places in Eastern Europe, whether it was Jan Gross's debate about neighbors so on and so forth, um, that even having a law, even if no one's going to be put in jail uh, for uh, for defaming the, the interests of the net Ukrainian nationalist movement, whatever that means, uh, that this is not, that these things are not helpful. Um, that if you, you know, given the choice between a more controversial or a less controversial topic, if you're a young aspirant in, in this area, I think you're going to choose the less controversial, uh, the less controversial one. But what this law really speaks to, again, is a larger uh, a larger effort to kind of uh, capture uh, and instrumentalize uh, the archives um, f- towards a very specific goal of creating, you know, under this sort of what we call, uh, a, I don't like to say nationalist, but a national history or a national paradigm uh, and preventing, uh, presenting a very sort of te- theological, sort of essentialist understanding of Ukrainian history, uh, of Ukrainians uh, as, uh, as, as victims of, of the Nazis uh, and the Soviets. Um, that carries up until the present, and I and I just I, I'm I think that that is um, that is particularly problematic, and it's actually even at odds with a lot of um, the more innovative work, especially from even other Ukrainian historians, not to mention people in the West right now. And so there's been uh, there've been yeah there've been a number of fireworks um, about uh, uh, over these debates um, about Ukrainian history. That was Jared McBride, a lecturer in the history department at UCLA specializing in ethnic diversity and mass violence in Nazi-occupied Volynia, Ukraine, during the Second World War. 
He's currently finishing a book titled Webs of Violence, Occupation, Revolution, and Terror in Western Ukraine, 1941-1944, to and he's the author of Peasants into Perpetrators, The Oun, Upa, and the Ethnic Cleansing of Volinia in 1943-1944, to published in the Fall 2016 issue of Slavic Review, and Who's Afraid of Ukrainian Nationalism, published in the Summer 2016 issue of Kritika. I've linked both articles on the podcast website, so be sure to check them out. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB podcast comes cheap, but it's not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at seansrussiablog.org. Thanks to all my high excellencies, high wellborns, and noblenesses for your continued patronage. And you can find passion... Different set of sex aspects and I 